the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Jesse Gestand. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gestand. Mm-hmm. That is me, of course, Jesse Gistan. Glad to be with you again on this Monday edition of Lifeline. How are you? How are you doing on this uh, excellent Monday evening, I should say? The weather is fabulous. Uh, great day. Um, spent a lot of time sort of recuperating from yesterday's activities. For most of us in a Christendom, particularly in the West, you know how we do first Sundays. It's the Lord's table after um, usually a Christocentric message, if if that is the case. And uh, and then for us, it's always fellowship. We like to sit around, eat, talk. And at length, we are at church from about eight o'clock in the morning till about four o'clock in the evening. That's why we don't have evening services. We can just go home and uh, lounge around like uh, a couple of beached whales or uh, porpoises, not porpoises, but uh, sea lions, <laughs> as is the case for my wife and I. And uh, just enjoy a Sabbath, if you will, a time off until Monday. Uh, woke up this morning to a, a really nice day weather-wise and uh, just began to do what most pastors do on Monday, kind of meander about and de- determine how to organize the day. Uh, Monday is a kind of psychologically challenging day, even though it's a restful day for me. Um, it's reflective, but sometimes I have to hit the ground running. Today I did not was able to just kind of order some things and, and put some things together and to pray. That's generally what I do, spend some time praying for direction, the best way to uh, attack the week. Um, as I recently was saying to the saints, we are blessed to have every day, and every day should be done intentionally. And that's what I what I, I do. So um, what was the big issue for us here recently? Saturday. That's right, Saturday. We are in our third week. We're on our third week of our Rules of Engagement uh, marriage series, if you've been a part of it. You know, it's been powerful. It's been wonderful. Our first week, we dealt with honoring our spouses with our speech. Um, and uh, building on that, we are moving now into our third week, honoring our spouses with our service. So this Saturday, we'll be talking about um, uh, how to serve our spouses um, in terms of uh, care and concern and needs and all of that kind of stuff. We've we've engaged in this for the last two weeks. Now, you know, marriage, biblical marriage is kind of a revolutionary thing. It's revolutionary in the sense that the trajectory of our world, the course of our world is moving fast away from the necessity of marriage. Um, and so it can be a real challenge as we were working through the heterosexual marriage paradigm of Scripture and all of its wonderful promises and its enormous challenges. As you guys know, marriage is extremely challenging. And that's why when you do have a marriage series or a seminar or a set of classes as we are, you have a lot of people who come out to attend. We have teenagers all the way up to folks in their 70s and 80s. Uh, experiencing uh, a time of biblical exposition and really deep probing Q&A. 
um, and uh, some funny funny things taking place as well. We've this year we've been uh, allowing for uh, gifts to be done. What do you call it? Uh, what do you call it? Raffles. <laughs> and so we have ten gifts that we give out uh, every week, uh, every class after every class, and. Um, this last week was just so humorous. Uh, my wife was in the audience and she happened to have won. And she let everybody know it by running down the aisle like we were doing the prices right or let's make a deal. And she's all on the Internet and everything. So it's so funny. Looking forward to next week, too. If you are still trying to work through your life in marriage and uh, what it's all about, you might just need a boost. Come on out on Saturday, 3 to 5. It generally ends up being from 3 to 6 o'clock, um, the way folks are enjoying the Class, But yeah, yeah, um, there are one of two institutions, one of two, and probably both to say the truth, that if the adversary could utterly destroy, uh, eliminate from being either relevant or existing in our world, it would be first the church in a close second, kind of like the commandments. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as your what? As yourself, those two commandments operate vertically and horizontally. You can't do the horizontal without doing the vertical. You cannot do the vertical without doing the horizontal. That's what John said. How can you say you love God whom you have not seen and you don't love your brother who you do see? Well, it's the same way with marriage. Powerful, powerful institution that God in his infinite wisdom has given to us to protect uh, human beings, at least those uh, vulnerable little ones until they grow up and become Adults, But within the framework of biblical marriage, you are teaching a wholesale theology of the true and the living God, who he is and and what he does and why he does it and how he does it is inherent in the full. uh, We call it the fullness expression. That's what marriage is, a fullness expression type of the invisible God. It's a manifestation of how God functions in the world with human beings. When you see a man and a woman and children and and doing life together together. Under God, you see the fullness of God's promise laid out in Genesis one twenty six. Let them have dominion over the earth, fill it, replenish it, subdue it, uh, dominate the whole world uh, with the care and provisio of two people who are walking with God. But we have our challenges, don't we? Today, I was reading an article, by the way, uh, concerning teenagers. And this article is quite fascinating because, I mean, what are teens but the consequence of a man and a woman coupling together, hopefully in marriage, but often not. Statistics show um, that we are losing that trend with our babies. But listen to this article before we go to the break and, 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 and recognize in it the need for parents to be extremely knowledgeable and prepared to deal with some of the struggles that young people are having today. Why teenagers are becoming trans-curious. Trans-curious. Why teenagers are becoming trans-curious. I'm sure that in our vast audience out there, there are some of you who do have teenagers that are really struggling with gender identity. How do you address that? How do you uh, furnish them with data and information? Well, I'm going to just read this article. Take a little while. I want you to think it through. When we come back from the break, we'll start um, nurturing phone calls, if you will, so we can start talking about it. 
Uh, I'd love to hear from you parents on this particular topic as well. How are you managing if you have come across a child that is um, struggling with and curious about uh, an alternative gender identity uh, versus that which you have given them and the doctors have given them as they stated? Um, how are you addressing that? Do you have a biblical um, basis for um, for your um, argument with them? Here's what it says. I quote the story. A new study published in the medical journal Pediatrics find many more teens than previously thought say they are transgender or identify themselves using other non-traditional gender terms. The background is in the United States, an estimated 0.6% of adults identify as transgender. Previous studies estimated the number was slightly higher for teens ages. Now, mark the ages now, because if you want to talk about it, I want you to understand that the whole idea of a teenager um, is that they are malleable, that they are not fixed in their psychology. Psychology, nor the, nor, uh, neither are they fixed in their physiology. So it, quite naturally, they would be questioning this metamorphosis, this hormonal dynamic, this, this transformation that's going on in their life, including in their gender. It says from 13 to 17, 0.7% of teenagers are um, questioning their uh, gender assigned to them by their parents. But according to CBS News, This latest study estimates that nearly 3% of teens are transgender or gender nonconforming, meaning they don't always self-identify as the sex they were assigned at birth. That includes kids who refer to themselves using neutral pronouns like them instead of he and she. That's an area you guys are going to be fighting in schools. It's already happening in colleges. It will happen in high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools over the next 10 years. How will you help your kids understand proper grammatical terminology relative to first person, singular, second person, third person, plural, etc., when they want to call themselves a them? Um, or whatever. If these estimates are correct, it means that young people are 329% more likely than adults to identify as transgender and that there are almost as many transgender teens as there are adult men and women who identify as gay, as gay or lesbian. What it means in Johannan Wolfgang's uh, Von Gogh's 1974-1774, novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, the protagonist describes suicide as a heroic act and as uh, Mario Savin says, proof of the strength of human beings. Now, it's an interesting aside here. Notice what he says. Uh, proof of the strength of human beings is their ability to uh, commit suicide when oppressed by life's unhappiness and is eventually able to perform a Last titanic action, just like people rising up against a tyrant. Now, in the novel, Werther kills himself, and in popular legends, the story led to an epidemic of suicides across Europe. In several countries, the novel was burned to prevent spreading its destructive influence. Now, there's a reason for this storyline, this aside, and I want you to hear it, because the author, or at least the psychologist that's making mention of this, has a wonderful insight that I think we need to talk about. And here it is. Whether suicides increase in the 18th century because of Young Werther's uh, novel is debatable. But what is not in dispute is whether is the weather effect that suicide is a social contagion. Suicide is a social contagion. 
and then increase in suicide tends to follow media coverage of suicides or is inspired by reading about suicides. Now, notice what he says. Suicide is a social contagion, and it's evidence that it increases suicides uh, when you have this strong media attention around it or reading about it. Copycat suicides are but one form of the phenomena social science researchers have labeled social contagions. The thesis that attitudes, beliefs, and behavior can spread through populations as if they were somehow infections? Simple exposure sometimes appear to be a sufficient condition for social transmission to occur. I want you to hear this because the writer is making a very important point. Simple exposure sometimes appears to be the sufficient condition for social transmission to occur. Research psychologist Paul Merlson says this is the social contagion thesis that sociocultural phenomena can spread through the leap between populations more like outbreaks of measles and chicken pots than through a process of rational choice. He's making the assertion that sometimes things happen on the part of people such as teens wanting to explore transgenderism. Uh, just out of a social contagion, not through a rational choice. And this guy's a psychologist. We'll be okay. This guy's a psychologist, and he's saying you need to be careful to know what this means. During the period, about 1.3% of women and 1.9% of men said that they were homosexual, while 2% of women and 1.2% of men identified as bisexual. However, There was a significant change when the survey was conducted between 2011 and 2013. The percentage of men and women who said they were homosexual didn't change, but the number of women who identified as bisexual increased to 5.5%, while the number of men who were identified as bisexual increased 2%. The number of women who reported having had sexual uh, contact with other women also increased from 14.2% to 17.4%. Notice that only 6% of women identified as lesbian or bisexual, yet more than double that number had engaged in same-sex sexual contact. The phrase bi-curious has come to be used to refer to such people who are interested in having a same-gender sexual experience without necessarily labeling their sexual orientation as bisexual. Social contagion is the only adequate explanation for why so many women have become bi-curious in such a short period of time. The ubiquitous promotion by the media of bisexual female relations has promoted the idea that such experimentation is a natural part of growing up for females. Even young men and women who have no desire to actually engage in same-sex sexual contact are encouraged to be open to be to bisexuality, as an anonymous reader recently told um, the author of the book. Now, I'm going to take a break uh, for news, and I'm going to take a break for traffic and all that. But when we come back, I want you to at least hear the conclusion, because one insider who happens to be a transgender themselves is saying that we need to be careful of buying into the children, young people wanting to just go down this route just because they feel that they are. He or she, as she is now, says social contagion, uh, social con- social contagion plays a major role in why this is happening. You're listening to the Monday edition of Lifeline. I am going to take a break for news and traffic. When I come back, I'll continue my article and I'll take your calls on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I will be right back. 
And now, back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistan. And we are back. The time is 521 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I'm talking to you about this new term called bi-curious, but it's really rooted in an observation of teenage behavior from 13 to 17, um, where young teens are no longer really advocating a firm bisexual attraction. Um, and the, the, art, the article is really suggesting that this is a consequence of uh, social contagion. Um, this is Joe Carter's article. I got this off the Gospel Coalition website. And he was saying that um, uh, over time where the media uh, creates scenarios, as you have in movies, where there is an exploration of uh, a same-sex attraction that it's clear that the impact of it is is, is a promotion or an encouragement to uh, and proliferation thereof of overt expressions of that kind of curiosity. I like the term bi-curiosity, by the way, or maybe even they would come to a point of saying, uh, what, pan-curiosity. Anyhow, the article goes on to say this. This is how crazy it is. My 12-year-old niece attends a public middle school. She's 12 now, you guys. A public middle school in a medium-sized Texas city. I learned yesterday that she says that most of her friends at school have come out as bisexual. I'm talking about kids as young as 10 and 11 years old. The way they say it is telling. While one boy apparently has a boyfriend and the liberal family is quite proud, He is the exception and has an unusual home situation. Most of these, they call the term super woke twins, super woke twins, phrase it in terms of I mostly like the opposite sex, but would date same sex as well. So this is the most plausible, a genuine discovery. This is obviously kids adding a qualification to their preference so as to be made acceptable. Isn't that quite interesting? He goes in to say, think about it. Kids are afraid to say that they are only that they only like the opposite sex. I do not think that the school pushed this. I think this is just in the youth culture atmosphere. I don't think it is even false consciousness, more just complimenting their emperor's clothing. Something similar appears to be happening with transgenderism. An inexplicably high percentage are self-identifying as transgender, and many more are becoming transcurious. That is, not yet identifying as transgender, but experimenting with adopting a gender nonconformity identity. How is it possible young people are 329% more likely than adults to identify as transgender? How is it possible there are almost exactly as many teenagers who identify as transgender as there are adult men and women who identify as gay and lesbian? The only reasonable answer is the phenomena is a social contagion driven by peers and pop culture, psychologists and uh, pediatricians. Listen, consider, for example, Daniel Schumer, a professor of pediatrics at the University of Michigan. In an accompanying opinion article in Pediatrics, Schumer wrote that the higher numbers should serve as a lesson to schools and physicians to abandon limited views of gender. Mm. Youth are rejoicing, are rejecting this binary thinking art and are asking adults to keep up with them. Now, most people are familiar with being either straight or gay, and most people are familiar with the concept of being bisexual, attracted to both. 
wrote John Stever, assistant professor of pediatrics at the Mount Sinai Adolescent Health Center. So if you apply that construct to gender, then that opens up the idea that there is more than just boys, girls, men, and women. There can be people who live in the space between that. And I'll often point out examples from pop culture, people like Grace Jones or David Bowie, people whose gender perception or gender presentation is a little ambiguous. But not everyone is buying the propaganda of these pediatricians. Now, note this as I close. The whole reason for which I read this article, not only to just inform you that it's happening and something you're going to have to deal with, and I want us to talk about it if you want to talk about it. How would you approach that topic? The article goes on to say, I think a fair number of kids are getting into it because it's trendy, says Erica Anderson, who is a transgender and a clinical psychologist at the University of California in San Francisco. Before transitioning, Anderson was married for 30 years and fathered two children. Quote, says Anderson, I'm often the naysayer at our meetings, Anderson says. I'm not sure it's always really trans. I think in our haste to be supportive, we're missing that element. Kids are all about being accepted by their peers. It's trendy for professionals as well. I thought that was insightful. The person that uh, Joe Carter is finally using as a different perspective than the trendy notions of the psychiatrist and the the uh, pediatrician saying to parents, just let your kids swing for a while. Whatever, wherever they land, that ought to be cool. No, this uh, this person, Erica Anderson, which is really a male, been a male for a long time, married for 30 years, father of two children, says, I'm the naysayer in our group. Uh, I'm not sure it's always really trans. I think in our haste to be supportive. Now, you want to be careful. Uh, again, it, within the realm of uh, a vast amount of psychological terminology, you guys know it. Support them, support them, support them, support them. Uh, in our haste to be supportive, um, we can sometimes fail to understand that all kids are doing is trying to trend with their peers. So here's my question as we begin to press into uh, some dialogue around this. And the number to reach me is one 367 You are becoming increasingly aware of the transgendered, pangendered um, spectrum of sexual um, identity affirmation, nonconformity, all of the language they use. You are starting to see it in the groups in which you socialize, schools, um, business uh, ventures, different uh, secular social activities you may uh, participate in, and even in some of your uh, yuppie churches. They're moving in that direction, I suppose. Um, Well, how do you deal with that? How do you, um, with your child, looking on at another young person who may have the the support of their family uh, when that child is seven or eight years old saying that I am a boy, and obviously she's not. But then her parents allow her to uh, take on the outward forms and appearance of a boy by putting on the clothing and, and cutting the hair and, and being ambiguously uh, gendered by the way she dresses. How do you help your kids work through that presentation? How do you do that? 
Or how do you work your kids? How do you help your kids work through that kind of presentation of ambiguity of gender specificity or the transgender move from being uh, you know, a boy to a girl and then putting on all of the necessary garb to uh, appear to be female or vice versa? Um, bisexual, transgender. How do you help them work through that terminology? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. How do you help them work through it by way of their little brains trying to process something that is an anomaly? Still, it is three percent. The author said, out of 100, that's still quite an anomaly, but it's not so much of an anomaly that if you were walking around for a couple hours a day in San Francisco or even in the Bay Area here, you might uh, might easily say you might bump into something like that. And then once you bump into something of that nature, how do you have the conversation with your kids? What biblical text do you use to support a worldview that would deny that that expression and presentation is valid? How would you address that? How would you address that when you are dealing with your kids in the school uh, sector and they come home and say, Mommy, um, uh, Joey um, was Julie last week or Janet, however way you want to express it. Now she's calling herself Joey. Um, I don't get it. What's that all about? How are you dealing with that, that with your kids? one 367 I want to talk to you about it. I want to hear from you on, about, on this matter because, you know, you're married. Hopefully. Um, And if not, you still have the obligation of bringing your kids up uh, in a biblical way. So how do we handle the challenges of a world moving uh, overtly and expressively against uh, biblical principles? If you even know them yourselves, Uh, how do we how do we address it? How do we help our children work through negotiate uh, a lack of internal connection at a young age with their gender? When you're young, you know, five, six, seven years old, that shouldn't happen unless you have been sexualized uh, in some kind of way that makes you internalize until you can look at yourself in the mirror and struggle with what you see versus how you feel. That might very well be the case. But even then, how does a parent help their child um, overcome that and be consistently rooted and grounded in biblical truth, which we believe to be is objective, immutable, unchangeable and right? How do you deal with it? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. How do you parents deal with a young girl or young boy? And we do know that our daughters, in many cases, can be more pliable than the boys. The stats are saying that, and and therefore you you can begin to see them starting to trend down a path of their peers, and their presentation is designed to basically uh, capitulate to peer group uh, consensus. How do you address that? I'm sure there's some parents out there who have indeed gone through this struggle. I'd like to hear from you. Um, I'm going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we'll take up this subject a bit more. Love to hear from you. This is about parenting. This is about family, about God, about life. How do you address that? one 367 one you are listening to the Monday edition of Lifeline, and your host is Jesse Gistan. We'll be right back. And now, back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistan. And we're back the time, 536, on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Two lines open. Love to hear from you on our topic. We are talking the challenges that parents would have today dealing with their teens and young adults who are 
um, exploring um, gender curiosity, gender uh, nonconformity, uh, bisexuality, transgenderism, and all of those spectrums that we are now commonly used to. I'm asking the question, are you dealing with that? Are you addressing that? Um, Are you having that conversation with your children? Interestingly, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine two numbers wide open. You know, one of the things that I discovered when I was working on the rules of engagement that you guys um, often hear me talk about, which is we are in our third class this Saturday coming and you're welcome to join us. We will have a fourth class um, simply because we had to build on our first one. And the class is just the three of us. And I'm saying that we need God in our marriage in order for it to actually form and shape itself into a viable witness and testimony of, of God's character, nature and grace. You can't do it by yourself. In that the adversary is attacking two institutions prominently, but he controls almost every institution where men are, and that is the church and the home. And we are now talking about how our children are impacted by the culture um, and and also our fallen humanity. And I'm asking the question, are you addressing uh, your children or preparing to address your children for the brave new world? As Aldous Huxley has stated it so many years ago, the brave new world of we're not doing it God's way. Are you prepared to engage them and address these matters so that they can know that God has something to say about it? I remember saying to our group last week or the week before that as I was doing some work looking for hymns of the faith relative to horizontal intimacy and horizontal love, guess what? I couldn't find any at all. All right, so Just the Three of Us is a, a spin on Just the Two of Us by Bill Withers, as you know, and I uh, put some lyrics to it that were more gospel-centered, uh, and we sh- we presented that song last week. You can catch us on on uh, live stream, or I think it might be video now, and you can see how we sang it, presented it. Put a gospel spin on it, yeah, because um, you know God created all humanity for horizontal love. But that horizontal love was not to excise itself from God and deliver itself from his ultimate objective, and that is to be glorified in our lives through it. But, yeah, I think sometimes we have to admit as the church that we have not done a well enough job of addressing horizontal love. So we started with our speech last week. We're moving to our service this week. And next week I'm talking about sex. Right. I'm going to be talking about the call to (laughs) sexual discipleship. Yeah. Sexual discipleship. I mean, we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, don't we? And yet in the area of sex, like I said, romance and and love songs, you just don't have anything in the church at all about horizontal love. It's all vertical and vertical is cool, but there has to be a horizontal spread in order for it to be a witness to the Imago Day in all of humanity. So we're working on some of that, too, within our um, own uh, culture at Grace. This is why you love R&B songs that are love songs. You know that you uh, love uh, 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 country music. Huge. Our country brothers and sisters be throwing down and and they have a massive following all because of love stories. You know that you know that. And we can see then a vacuum in the in the culture of the church around these things. Well, a lot of times when pastors starts talking about sex. You can hear a pin drop in the church. Or the proverbial mouse running the trail of the church, going back to the back to eat some cheese. How come? Because we have fundamentally left off with addressing it from a biblical, 
Christocentric, rich husband-wife paradigm, and I would even say father-son paradigm, uh, and therefore we don't have enough robust material to deal with it. Well, we're starting to do something about that. So if you want to come out and uh, have a conversation around, you know, sex, intimacy, the relationship between a man and a woman, and why God employs it as a critical component to marriage, as a model of Christ in the church, and for the healthy proliferation of children around the world, albeit with all of the complications you and I are addressing now, um, you can come out this Saturday, come out next Saturday. Uh, We're going to go deep into it as we possibly can. And we want to do that because we want to give our kids tools. Got a lot of young people at our church, a lot of young men. In fact, this last marriage series brought in so many more young people. um, This has just been amazing because they want to get marriage right. So uh, we're talking about it. And I'd love to hear from you. I got one line open, one 888 let us start the conversation with James from the Bay. James, you want to cut your radio down, brother? Yes, sir. You got to fool me today around here. Okay. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good with you. I was just... Uh, catching the topics, and it was kind of interesting when you were uh, reading the, uh, uh, I guess the caption there about the bicurious. I don't know if you recalled it, but I brought that term up to you some five or six years ago as one of my students brought it to me. Okay. And it's interesting that it's now more, you know, out of, you know, once you let the cat out the bag, I mean, it's, it's gone. Yeah. I mean, it's out there. But as far as the question was, I'm pretty sure with the students that I work with, the young people that I work with, that, you know, the gospel is not being shared with their children in such a way to be able to position themselves, you know, to, to position themselves to handle what's going on in the schools today. I agree. And it, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious and it's, un, it's unfortunate. I mean, the only way we, we're going to be able to stand today is by sound biblical doctrine. I mean, I mean, there's no other two ways about it. If you're going to be able to enter the discussion for, you know, what is what is right, true, and correct, then we have to be able to stand. We have to be able to stand solidly on on, on, on scripture, on sound doctrine, sound biblical doctrine. You know, and that starts with, like you said, over in Deuteronomy, somewhere around six and four. You know, you have to we have to start off raising our children up according to First Peter 2 and 9, yep. letting them know that there are definitely a peculiar people. We are not like the rest of them. Not that we're, we're set aside for them. We're not isolated, isolated, but we are separated. Sure. You know, in what we're doing. But that has to come in at an early age. They have to be here next in the time. They have to be here next, excuse me, before they learn to talk, because that's discussion they ought to be hearing between their mother and their father when they're still in the womb. So when they come out out of the out of the fluid, they're already hearing. You know, you can hear when you're underwater a little bit. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. So if they're if they're hearing this early, and it's not only hearing it, but it's being demonstrated, then they can better assimilate. But if it's only been hitting on three times a year, if that, then that's what their Christianity is going to be like, like it is with so many people. 
Well, according to the article and then right now a book that I'm reading in preparation for dealing with uh, with with uh, how to honor our spouses in our sexual intimacy, which is a problem as well. This is this would be the post marriage problem of the pre marriage deficiency that you're describing. If one would uh, be able to affirm what you're saying, James, that our children are uh, malnourished in the area of biblical truth so as to not understand that they're called to be different from the world insulated, not isolated and walking according to a set of principles that are immutable and unchangeable and are the best for them from God, then they would be equipped to deal with oppositional knowledge that would come to them and be able to weigh that oppositional knowledge out over against what their parents have taught them. But here is some of the challenges that our culture brings to our kids that parents are starting to experience now, that fundamentally everything in the world is not only militating against the word of God. And it's not even militating against the word of God directly. It's militating against the word of God indirectly by making the parents substandard in the eyes of the children. It's it's attacking the word of God by causing children to feel as if they do not need to buy into their parents' teachings and practices as the gospel. So by the time your kids are in the sixth grade, they've already been taught how to detach from you um, uh, and, and operate out of a kind of autonomy that says they can leave or take what mommy and daddy says. And mommy and daddy has to fight against that daily, particularly when their kids are in that kind of environment. And as you stated, if the kids don't have a comprehensive knowledge of biblical truth that really speaks to the whole of human uh, makeup, the whole of the human makeup, psychology, uh, emotions, uh, intellect, volition, and then, of course, our hormonal uh, dynamic of, uh, of sexuality, uh, attraction, attachment, leading to uh, a, a cleaving covenant principle by which we get married. Uh, if all of that language is not being developed early on, then they have no idea what's taking place when not only are they being taught something that is alien and and um, not addressed in the home, but now their physical bodies are moving in concert with those alien teachings from a hormonal standpoint, and they appear to be being affirmed in their physiology because they are starting to have curiosities about sex here, there, and the other place without the boundaries of a biblical knowledge base to address it objectively and effectively. And I think that that is a huge challenge for parents, for which I don't have many people calling even now. Uh, but yourself and you're able to do it, James, because you are in the school system every day and you see the impact of a, uh, a deficiency of biblical truth in our kids, don't you? So, James, why are you doing that to me, brother? Yes, sir. Why are you listening Hello? to the radio and talking to me, too? Well, I just have to let you know, in the past, I wasn't talking to you. What's going on today? I don't know what's happening today. Jarrell is not there. But usually when oh, you're talking, I can hear you through the, through, through the, I can't hear it. Goes, it goes mute on me. So I didn't know you, if you were gone or not. So that's why I was trying to listen to me in the camera. Okay, you know, I got you. We got that fixed. <laughs> We got a good okay, brother behind the screens. He's just, he just being a rookie for the day. But he'll, he'll fix that in about five minutes. I was wondering why you was running from the telephone over to the radio and back to the telephone because you had never done that before. Right, right. That's what it was. Yeah, I, I'm here with you. So uh, I'm behind. But, you know, you, I mean, 
I agree. I think I'm a few seconds behind because I didn't hear everything you were saying. I was trying to catch up. What I was saying but, to you, what I was saying to you was that um, it's evident that our kids are not armed with biblical truth comprehensively so that they are the product of what we have is isolational Christianity. Um, like I said, next Saturday, I'm going to be actually taking a phrase that I, I got from a book and it's called um, a call to sexual discipleship, a call to sexual discipleship. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it may be a trendy term, but what the author is saying is historically, we have not been able to give a robust enough theology around our sexuality in order to arm up our, the believer to know that you don't get to dichotomize uh, being a believer in Christ, you know, you say you love the Lord, you read your Bible, you go to church, but you have reserved your sexual life to to you being Lord over it. So that your Lord, your sex is not even uh, the uh, the sphere and rule and dominion of Jesus Christ. And that's a consequence of not being taught comprehensively about it. If we teach in church every Sunday, morals and ethics based upon the gospel, James, but it doesn't press into penetrate and absorb the deep psychological, emotional, volitional, and therefore uh, sexual orientation of the uh, human being and have a theology that is able to actually uh, uh, frame it and and define it and, and put it in a course that honors God, then yeah, we're going to assume that, okay, God might be talking to me uh, over here, but in these other areas, I can do what I want. And I can tell you that's the vast majority majority of Christianity today. Absolutely. And see, one other area I would take on, and I, I learned this well from you, is that we have, to, we, have to, we have to tackle, we have to challenge terminology. Yep. Okay, we have to challenge terminology sure. at its core. Sure. Uh, for example, I think what you were reading earlier about the transgender person who is now with father, three children. Sure. And is now a transgender woman. Sure. Okay, so my question, like I, and I tell people, you really have to teach them to think. Right. Transgender, that's a, a change, a crossover. Right. You know, gender. Right. There's only two genders. That's what God made. That's what it was from the beginning. That's the way it is now. Right. Now, transgender. If the father who, if he fathered three children and now he's a woman, now can he mother three children? Right. Or can he mother one child? Right. Because he has the ability to do that. Because right. if you don't have the ability to do that, then you don't have the authority to say that you're transgender. To me, the, the, the term, even though it's out there, all the propaganda is running loose, it's a, it, it, it's a false dichotomy. It's, it, it's a false it's false. I agree. The notion is false. I mean, we believe that, but we have, but as we start talking to people, you know, in our circles, we widen our circles to get them to think, then they understand it. Because believe me, the society is not buying into this hook, line, and sinker, into this propaganda like people would think. But if I you agree. listen to the liberal media, you think that. Oh, well, it's, it's a done deal, but it's far from that. Agreed. It's far from that. Agreed, and that's where we're going to leave it for now because i got to take a hard break. Mm-hmm. I agree with you fully that it's, it's not a done deal, and the Christian should be in the marketplace in a charitable but a very bold and confident way, uh, creating the conversation and challenging people on propositions and terms. I totally agree. Three lines open, one 888 Give me a call, y'all. Let's talk this through. James had a lot of good things to say. Nina, you hold on. We're going to take a break uh, on this Monday edition of Lifeline, and we'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistan. And we are back at the time, 5.55 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. We are trying to get some folks to call in and chat with me on our topic today, and that is young people and their fluidity of um, thoughts 
and their fluidity of choices um, simply because they're not uh, formative in their understanding of how the world works and even their own identity. And uh, in, in the secular world, our culture has given them a lot of material by which they can break out of your typical Christian view of um our human makeup as being uh, binary in our sexual orientation, male and female, as uh, James so aptly put it out of Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. He made them male and female in the image of God created he them. And so I do want to go to line number two and talk with Nina. Is that Nina in East Palo Alto? Nina, are you there? Yes. Hi, how yes, are you? I'm here. Hi. What's your thoughts? Um. So I'm a parent. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm married and I have uh, two little girls, and uh, they are seven and three years old. Mm-hmm. And my seven-year-old is already learning about, uh, you know, the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. in her school, mm-hmm. and she's in um, first grade. Right. And so when she comes home to me and asks me questions about, you know, the way that different groups live, I have told her that yes, there are people out there who live differently than the in the way you have seen between mommy and daddy. And, you know, and there are people who have, you know, two mommies and two daddies and, you know, and things like that and so forth. But I tell her that um, we are lovers of God and we are friends of God. And that as his children, he wants us to live differently. And we show him that we love him by doing what he says. Right. And so, um, and so that is not always going to be what your friends are doing, and that's not always going to be something that you see. It might be confusing to you to see something different than what you've been taught. But I said, if you want to be blessed in your life, you do what God says, and you'll be blessed. And uh, and that's kind of a simpler version because mm-hmm. she is seven. Mm-hmm. But um, as she gets older. I want to also express to her that her identity is found in Christ and not in any other um, identity that she could develop or um, identify in herself, that we are new creatures in Christ and that uh, we are renewed in our minds and we are resurrected, our spirit and our our inner man, and and that that is the best way to go. And of course, you know, she has her choice, but we're working on this early on. And even with my three-year-old, there was a time when she kept saying, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. And I took my baby in my hands and I held her face and I looked her in her eyes and I said, the truth abide in you mm-hmm. and in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I speak that over them. I speak over my children. I pray over them every single day because, the enemy will try to pervert their thoughts and confuse them and even terrorize them. Um, but we don't allow it because they're sanctified through us. So, um, so that's, that's been my approach as a parent. And of course this is, you know, um, I'm, I'm a first time parent of two children mm-hmm. and I don't know what the future will hold, but I'm trusting God and I'm, pleading the blood of Jesus over my children and I pray over them. And so far, so good. So Right. 
You know what, Nina? I actually appreciate your call on a number of levels. So I'm going to use you to close out this segment. Hope I can get some other calls because what you're doing is being proactive. And that's so critically important. Um, A lot of times Christians aren't. And especially when you have new little ones and you really don't necessarily even know what the terrain of their life experience is from being uh, children on up. You have a daughter in school. You have a daughter about to be in school. And uh, Mm -hmm. the practice of speaking uh, to your children early on, as James had stated, uh, about biblical Mm -hmm. truth and, uh, and, and bringing them into that truth as their reality is what parents are called to do. Parents are called to bring, you and I can't save our children, but we can, we can give them what is necessary for them to be saved. The second thing that right. you do, because I, you know, I, I, I'm a pastor for a long time and, and a grandparent of, of many grandkids and having a lot of kids too. We talk to our kids um, um, as our God being their God. That's a foregone conclusion. It's not even an, it's not like an option. It's not like something you say, well, you know, honey, I would really like for you to have my God as your God. No, my God is your God. And, and therefore, and therefore our biblical worldview is transferred to them as their own. They don't actually have the right or privilege to develop their own until they are old enough to um, ultimately reject ours. And God calls us to that. And in so doing, we give them the framework of how to see and how to understand the world right, God right, and themselves right, so that by the time they are old enough to have to struggle through right and wrong, they will have a biblical worldview, a biblical thesis as their inherited identity so that they can struggle with it then. That's the best that you and I can do and believe God for right. the outcome as he promises. But what you did was also good. You said that... um Honey, we're different. And a lot of times we are so uh, we are so timid as Christians to hold to mm. the uniqueness and peculiarity of being true believers because we you know, we just wanna we wanna conform to the world, won't everybody be happy with us. Um but you know, right. whosoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Bible's very clear about that. Uh and it's talking about this world system, how people think and how people act. We have to actually discern and determine whether or not it corresponds with our fathers will. So when you tell your children, when you say to your children, um, uh, we are different uh, by design, by grace design, and then we Mm -hmm. seek to obey God to affirm that difference. You have given the kids the two keys to uh, biblical evangelism, which is rooted in biblical discipleship. And this is so beautiful because uh, they're going to know that if I am different, like mommy and daddy says, uh, then mm-hmm. the evidence of me being different is me knowing God's word and therefore knowing God and then doing life the way God says do it. This is a, a wonderful strategy that you're implementing. And may the Lord continue to bless you. And what's your daughter's names? Uh, Ava and Rhea. Okay, Ava and Rhea. They're in my prayers. Rhea. They're in my prayers. Thank too. you so much. Have you listened to this program before? I have. Okay, good. Well, thank you for the call. You are doing a wonderful job, and the Lord bless you immensely and made the prophecy and promises of his word and your desires come to pass a hundredfold in your children's life, as is the case for mine. Bless you. Bless you. Got to take a break. We are way overdue. Well, not way overdue, but just overdue. All the lines are open. So when I come back, I expect more people on the lines. One triple eight. 367-5329. Do you have a testimony like Nina? 
Can you expand on what Nina or James has said? This is going to be the conversation today because we are committed to helping our children walk the straight and narrow path right into glory. I'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.